welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the Seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the Word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary the third angel's message in verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. Good morning. Happy Sabbath to each one of you. It's good to see your smiling faces this morning. Missed every one of you. Thank you, Lori. Appreciate that. As I was driving down Interstate 75 uh, to the Georgia Dome there in Atlanta, uh, I looked up to my right, and there was a billboard. And on that billboard was a message from your friendly Baptist churches of the South. And evidently the message that they wanted the thousands of travelers to see um, as they commuted back and forth to downtown Atlanta was this, obedience leads to a changed life. And I thought about that message, and I thought to myself, you know, God has revealed to us in the Bible some better news than that. God doesn't ask us to do something in order to have a changed life. God asks us to believe his good news, and his power brings the changed life. We believe good news. We do not do good news. Doing good news is bad news in reality because... Whoever makes the promises produces the righteousness. And the last time I checked, there's not one iota of righteousness in Paul Penno. How about you? Every righteousness comes from Jesus. That's why it's called righteousness by faith in Christ, isn't it? It all comes from him. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, we pray that you'll reveal to us some wonderful news from the book of Galatians that is yet to lighten the earth with your glory. In the Savior's name we pray, amen. My text is taken from Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. Um, Is it possible that six little chapters in the book of Galatians, which shook the ancient world during the Apostle Paul's day, could do it again with its present truth? You know, Ellen White was reported to have said back in 1890, I believe it was, Let us have all of Romans and all of Galatians. And I like that because we're studying the book of Romans right now in our uh, Sabbath school classes. Let's have all of Romans and all of Galatians, she says. By the way, you're aware that in the first quarter of 2011, we're going to be studying the book of Galatians. So a terrific explosion, tension has erupted worldwide over the truth of the gospel of Christ. Is Christ truly the Savior of the world? Or is he a wannabe Savior who offers salvation to all but only becomes an individual Savior when he does something right in believing upon him? In other words, are we co-saviors with Jesus? Is salvation by faith and works, or is it by faith alone? What is true faith? And what is its origin and what is its source? I'm fully convinced that the great controversy between Christ and Satan has infiltrated every level of the churches today. Every level. 
Satan has used to mask his deceptions in very crude ways. Some of us remember reading in Ellen White's writings about how spiritualism manifested itself in the 19th century. Remember remember those knockings on the walls and those seances and so forth? Those were rather crude ways that Satan tried to captivate people's attentions uh, back in those days. But he has become much more sophisticated in his fine arts by cloaking the religion of self as righteousness by faith. If you doubt my words, even a religious commentator back in 1932 in the Sunday School Times made a remarkable statement in regard to Satan's changing of his plans in regard to what he observed in the mid-19th century going on in God's people. And this statement was quoted in the Review and Herald by F.M. Wilcox in 1934. Let me read it to you. In 1888, Satan changed his plan and prepared to take advantage of the age of intellectual egotism. You have an idea what egotism is? It's all about me. Satan changed his plan and prepared to take advantage of the age of intellectual egotism, which is now in full bloom. Orders were given to appeal to the intellect and reason in high places. Churches are to be changed into synagogues of Satan. The devil desires a federation of churches. In other words, the religion of self throughout all the Christian churches. This federation eventually will merge into a brotherhood of religion. In other words, all of the religions will merge because of the basis of self being the bottom line of each one of them. Is the religion of self that binds all Christian religions and pagan religions of the world into one grand federation of spiritualism? That is Satan's goal. That's how he intends to postpone forever the second coming of Jesus. You know, it was Lucifer himself who invented the religion of the ego, wasn't he? In Isaiah 14, verse 14, very familiar verse to all of us, we read when he said, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, didn't he? What is I? I will ascend. That's ego. So he's the one that invented the ego religion, which he's trying to insert into the Christian church, which is the basis for federation with all of the religions of the world. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. That's in Isaiah 14, verse 14. The religion of the ego is the religion of Satanism. It is this religious combine that will make an image to the beast, which is the union of church and state, and enforce the mark of the beast, which we understand to be the worship of God on the first day of the week, as opposed to the seal of God which is the seventh-day Sabbath. And by the way, the Sabbath is a sign of God's self-denying agape love sealed in your heart and mine. The Sabbath is the outward sign of that. You know, in the early church of the apostles, the religion of self, Paul called it here in Galatians 2.16, which Norm read to us as our worship text, Paul called the worship of self the works of the law. 
That's what that phrase means. The works of the law is the religion of self. And that was a very subtle temptation in the early church. This was the seeds of the full flowering of the papacy. In other words, it was planted in the first century church of the apostles. You know, the papacy is a religion of man. It has a man at its head who claims to be uh, the representative of God on this earth. So that church can never be converted. You know, self can never be changed. Self cannot be converted. The only thing that can, God can do with self is to crucify it with Christ. That's our only hope. Well, it was over this issue of the circumcision of the Gentiles in our passage in the church in Antioch that this religion of self was manifested. Let's explain this and put it out on the table, shall we? I believe it applies for our time now. For a very brief moment in the early Christian church, there was harmony. Amen. There was harmony between Peter and Paul and Barnabas, it tells us, in Galatians chapter 2. Harmony in their proclamation of the gospel among the Gentiles. They were pressing together in the unity of the faith. In other words, and that will be true of the last manifestation of God's true religion and faith before he comes. They lived, they taught the faith of Jesus. And how was that done? By uplifting the cross of Christ before the Gentiles' eyes. And when they heard Paul preach, it is as if the cross were right before them in a present moment and they gave permission for their self to be crucified with him whenever Paul preached. The principle of the cross is the principle of God's self-denial. That was supreme in the Gentile Christian community. But the gospel is never intended to produce holy flesh before the second coming of Christ. In other words, the gospel teaches Christians to say no when self tempts you, no to ungodliness and worldliness. It teaches us to say no to the temptations of the flesh. Consequently, after this, Peter gave in to his flesh because he had some visitors come to him from headquarters church in Jerusalem. And they visited out there in the Antioch mission They were sent as delegates by James, who was the head representative of the church. And we're told here in Galatians 2, verses 11 and 12, that formerly Peter had sat down to table and ate in potluck with the Gentiles. Okay? Just like we're going to do. We're all going to sit down and we're going to have potluck together, right? We're going to have fellowship. We're going to have an enjoyable experience together with Jesus in the room with us. And Peter had done that with the Gentiles because Peter believed that Christ is the Savior of the world. He believed the Gentiles, Jesus was their Savior too, just as well as he as a Jew. Jesus is the Savior of the uncircumcised Gentiles as well as the circumcised who was the Jew. Well, now he must... uh, he, he, he uh, re- actually, Peter learned this. He didn't come up with this on his own. Peter didn't come up with this revelation of the gospel. 
God had to reveal it to him. And you know how God revealed it to him? In a vision. You remember that sheet that came down to him with all kinds of animals in it? Unclean animals. And he was told to eat by the angel. And he says, I've never eaten any pork in my life. I've never eaten any unclean animal in my life. Well, Peter, that's not the reason for this vision. This vision is to strike you with the revelation that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And immediately he had a knock on his door. Would you please come and give a Bible study to a Roman centurion? That's a Gentile. Now Peter knew that Christ was the Savior of this Roman Gentile, and he must deliver the good news to him. If he hadn't had that revelation, he wouldn't have gone. Give that Bible study. The revelation of the gospel has to come to you from God himself. You'd never think of the cross yourself. Neither would I. So, when these brethren came down from the church at headquarters with James, by the way, James was the half-brother of Jesus who was appointed as the leader of the whole church. Uh, they did not so understand the gospel, salvation as a gift to all men. The brethren in Jerusalem believed that only those who were circumcised were the elect of God. In other words, Jesus died only for those who believed and did something right. They believed in Jesus, and then they submitted themselves to circumcision. In other words, salvation is by faith in Jesus and works or circumcision, you see. In other words, you have to back this up even more and see that their vision of Christ's atonement was limited to those who had faith and were circumcised. That's whom Jesus died for on the cross. So the Jerusalem gospel was to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be circumcised, and then you will be saved. The problem with this gospel was the fear factor. The fear factor. Because once the door was opened, to require the circumcision of the, of the Jews for the Gentiles for salvation. Then there was a multitude of other Jewish laws to be fulfilled in order to retain salvation, and one never knew whether he had enough done enough in order to have the assurance of salvation. So it was a religion of fear with the radius of self-motivation, which is a concern about the avoidance of hell and a heavenly reward, and the heart remains untouched and unchanged in its being an enemy with God. But that is what Peter was up against with the pressure of these Jewish Christian visitors from James. Now look at verse 12. Galatians chapter 2, verse 12. It says that Peter was fearing. You see that word, fearing? This is a religion of fear. Peter was fearing them which were of the circumcision. Now, only one man at Antioch had the discernment of the Holy Spirit to see the truth of the gospel. It meant that he had to oppose the whole leadership of the church, including James, the brother of Jesus. And Peter, too, who was the premier saint and the first claimed pope by the Roman church. The true gospel, the true cross of Christ has always been opposed. Even in the earliest birth pangs of the Christian church, 
So what makes us think that we're going to be exempt from the same great controversy in these last days? Paul realized that the truth of the gospel was not determined by church councils or even by apostolic example. Wasn't Peter an apostle? It was by a revelation of Jesus Christ, it says in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 12. So, if the remnant be a majority of one, Paul would speak up publicly so that Jesus might receive his reward for which he died. Because God was on trial, and Satan would defeat the true religion of the cross before the eyes of these Jewish and Gentile Christians. So everything depended at that moment on Paul's stand for the truth of the gospel. The Gentiles, if he didn't, would become confused about the gift of salvation and the true motivation for faith, which is agape. That is God's self-denying love. The Jewish Christians would continue in their blind, self-motivated love of works righteousness, which could only produce lukewarmness in the church. And so Paul opposed Peter's hypocrisy publicly, as I read to you verse 14 here, Galatians 2 verse 14. He says, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles, and not as do the Jews... Why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? In other words, Peter, before the coming of these Jewish Christians, you, an ethnic Jew, you were freely mingling among the Gentiles. You were sitting down to the potluck and eating with them. And you treated them as equal brothers in Christ. But the fear of the brethren from Jerusalem caused you, Peter, to throw your Gentile brethren under the bus and compel them to conform to the Jewish laws of rites and ceremonies in order to be saved and enjoy fellowship with Jewish Christians. You can see, can't you, that this, this gospel, this teaching of salvation by rites and ceremonies and legalism, it really divides people, doesn't it? It divides people. It destroys fellowship in Christ. It proclaims the character of a God who makes distinctions based on race. This ethnic teaching comes through in Paul's characterization of the Judaizers' attitude there in verse 15. Look at it. It says, He says, we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. What Paul is simply saying, he's reflecting This Jewish gospel, it is a dividing, divider between the races. The Jews are the favored race, simply by the fortuitous luck luck of birth. All the rest of humanity are sinners. And all religion that is self-motivated tends toward a superior race. Hence, Paul clearly proclaims two kinds of faith. And there are only two kinds of faith as we go into the time of trouble and the mark of the beast issue. There's only two kinds. And and they are both diametrically opposed to each other. They are the faith that is proclaimed by the federation of religions. It's called Babylon in the second angel's message. And then there is true faith which God 
is revealing to us as Seventh-day Adventists from the Scriptures. And it is only true faith that Adventism will proclaim at the end of time. Those two faiths are there. The one faith is motivated by self-interest, which is avoiding hell at all costs so I can have my reward in heaven. In other words, Paul reveals here, or a faith that is motivated by seeing the cross, which is the self-denying love of God. That's true Adventism. Amen. In other words, Paul is revealing to us a final preview of the conflict of the Mark of the Beast issue. The kind of faith versus the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus that we read about in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 12. So we come to our key text in verse 16. If you'll look there in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law... You know the word justify means the forgiveness of sins. A person is not forgiven of their sins by self-motivated works. But, he says, by the faith of Jesus Christ. And you know what that is. That's Jesus' faith. That's Jesus' atonement faith. We'll have more to say about that. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ. In other words, faith that is motivated by Jesus' self-denying love. That we might be justified by the faith of Christ. There it is again. And by the works, and not by the works. Here, is this on? Uh, when my father was in the uh, active evangelistic ministry, there used to be an evangelist by the name of Fortis Dedimore, and uh, he was noted to be the most active preacher on the, on the platform. He would pace back and forth, back and forth, and when they wired him up to speak, a young person on the front row said, who is that monkey that's talking into the microphone up there? They saw that tail, and <laughs> they thought he was a monkey. <laughs> All right, so we had read here Galatians 2 and verse 16. So I see here in this verse 16, I see the third angel's message in verity. It's contrasted with the mark of the beast. There are three times in this one verse, verse 16, and once more there in verse 17, where it says, if while we seek to be justified by Christ, that Paul is definitively contrasting Uh, justified by the works of the law with justified by the faith of Christ. By the way, friends, the, the problem, the law of God is not the problem here. It is a man justified by the works of the law. No flesh be justified. The problem is we seek to be justified. That's the problem, not the law of God. In fact, Paul never associates the word faith with any of these self-motivated methods of receiving forgiveness of sins. In contrast, twice Paul uses the word faith in the subjective sense of the faith of Jesus. And once he uses the word faith 
in the objective sense of believing in Jesus, which is seeing and appreciating his atonement kind of faith. So the, the source, dear friends, of your faith in Jesus is the faith of Jesus. Did you get that? The source of your believing in Jesus comes from the faith of Christ himself. So that leads us to this question. What is the faith of Jesus? That's a good question. What is the faith of Jesus? And Paul defines it for you. Aren't you so thankful that the Bible is self-interpreted by the Holy Spirit? Well, you find the definition for the faith of Jesus in verse 20. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. There we read, I live by the faith of the Son of God, it says, who loved me and gave himself for me. The faith of, he, Paul says, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Son of God? That is the divine Christ. Correct? Son of God is the divine Christ taking upon himself our sinful self, our sinful humanity. The faith of the Son of God is the divine Son and the Son of Man in one person, all motivated by agape, denying himself through the whole span of his life, culminating in the complete surrender of his humanity as well as his divinity to the Father on the cross. That's the faith of the Son of God. So the ultimate meaning of the cross is the atonement. Jesus had to deny himself because he loved you so much that he surrendered his humanity and his divinity to his Father, and that's the atonement faith of Christ upon which you believe in him. The ultimate meaning of the cross is the atonement. By faith, his heart was at one with his father. Now, an interesting issue arose back in 1940. It was raised by a sermon which the pastor of the Tacoma Park Seventh-day Adventist Church preached, and one church leader whose name was Prescott tried to convince this pastor Anderson that Christ did not die as the Son of God. Prescott said to Pastor Anderson, I don't appreciate you leaving me without a Christ for three days and three nights. Well, that statement was made after he had, Prescott had taken the position that it was not the Son of God that died on the cross, but the Son of Man. Well, what does our text say here? I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and did what? And gave himself for me. Who died on the cross? The Son of Man or the Son of God? It was the one person, the Son of Man and the Son of God. Correct? You can also read Romans 5, verse 10 on that, and Colossians 1, verses 13 and 22. You see, if it was only the Son of Man who died on the cross and not the Son of God, then we have no Savior from sin. Because it was only God himself become a man 
one who is equal with the law of God, who could give the atonement for sinners. There is no mere human being who could die for the whole race of sinners. God himself must die for sinners because he alone is equal to the law, his own law. And the Apostle Paul is in complete agreement with this. He writes, it was the Son of God who gave himself for me. You know, it has always been the accusation of Satan since the beginning that God's always going around telling everybody to serve him, serve him, do this for him, and do that for him. Always asking his creatures, demanding of them self-denial. But he never gives it himself. He never gives it himself. And the fellow Ellen White enunciates this this way. Satan had accused God of seeking merely the exaltation of himself in requiring submission and obedience from his creatures and had declared that while the creator exacted self-denial from all others, he himself practiced no self-denial and no sacrifice. But dear friends, the whole of Jesus' human and divine life on this earth, from his incarnation to the cross, was a perfect demonstration of divine self-denial. Wasn't it? A perfect demonstration of it. And the cross was the climax of that self-giving agape. It's true that the greatest temptation that Christ faced throughout his earthly life was unbelief. And you know what? The greatest sin of all humanity is the sin of unbelief. Unbelief. And Christ was constantly tempted by Satan to disbelieve that he was the Son of God. You're aware of this, aren't you? You remember Satan presented to him three times out there in the wilderness. He said, if thou be the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. If you really are the Son of God, in other words, you don't look like the Son of God to me. Or, if you're the Son of God, do a hang glide off of this high tower. You must have some kind of a Napoleon complex to think that you are the Son of God. Tell you what, I'll give you all of the empires of the world if you bow down before me. By the way, it was the same temptation that echoed in the words of the casual passers-by when Jesus was dying on the cross in Matthew 27, verse 40. If thou be the Son of God, do what? Come down from the cross. Prove it. Do you think that this was not a real temptation to disbelieve that he was the Son of God? You don't think this was a temptation for him? It was a powerful temptation for him because in his hour of utter loneliness with nothing but Mary's anointing of his feet, with his tears in his memory, he was sorely tempted to disbelieve that he was the Son of God. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? No God would forsake his Son. And it was just then that the Father resisted everything in his being to refrain from putting out his arms and embracing his Son but the rules of engagement with the devil in the great controversy would not permit him to comfort his son. Christ must tread the winepress all alone 
until every drop of lifeblood was squeezed out of him. And so the chasm that was created by our sins that were bearing down upon his soul would tend to rupture forever the fellowship between the Father and the Son, and really the whole government of God rested on the shoulders of this weak, divine human. And he could have given in to unbelief. He could have sinned. It was a real possibility. Ellen White makes this statement, he could have sinned, he could have fallen, but not for one moment was there in him an evil propensity. That's in The Faith I Live By, page 49. Well, if that had happened, there would have been no genuine love to make the atonement bridge between sinners and God. So this was the moment of truth. This is what Satan had been hoping for by forcing God's hand in sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, that this was his opportunity for victory, that he had even hoped that Christ would come down off of his cross to prove that he was the Son of God before his detractors. However, by faith, Jesus demonstrated beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was the Son of God by staying on his cross. Ellen White says this in Desire of Ages, page 756. By faith, he rested in him, the Father, whom it had ever been his joy to obey. And as in submission, he committed himself to God. The sense of the loss of his Father's favor was withdrawn. By faith, Christ was victor. That's the faith of Jesus. That's the climax of it right there. Luke emphasizes. Now, this is one text for required reading this Sabbath morning. Go to Luke chapter 23 and verse 46, because this explains it all. Luke chapter 23 and verse 46. Who died on the cross? Jesus explains it in his last expiring moments. Luke emphasizes that when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. I give you my life. Here it is. And having said this, he gave up the ghost. In other words, he proclaimed his faith in the Father with the ultimate act of self-denial in giving up all control of his divinity to the Father. Amen. Ellen White says in Desire of Ages 753, the Savior could not see through the portals of the tomb. Hope did not present to him his coming forth from the grave a conqueror or tell him of the Father's acceptance of the sacrifice. He feared that sin was so offensive to God that their separation was to be eternal. That's how he died. But he was a victor by faith. He gave his divinity over to the control of the Father. That's how the Son of God died. That's good enough for me. Isn't it for you? Paul writes, he gave himself for us. This is the faith of Jesus. But more than that, he died the second death. Christ felt the anguish which the sinner will feel 
writes the pen of inspiration, Desire of Ages 753. The sinner will feel when the mercy shall no longer plead for the guilty race. It was the sense of sin bringing the Father's wrath upon him as man's substitute that made the cup he drank so bitter and broke the heart of the Son of God. You see, Jesus did not just take a three-day holiday for R&R when he died on the cross and die Friday and then come back from the holiday on Sunday. The popular notion of death being a release of the soul from the body to go to its reward does not lead to a deeper understanding of Jesus' atonement on his cross. It was not a vicarious substitution, as is the common Christian notion. Such a legal fiction leads to faith being a mental ascent of the mind to a creedal statement which has no basis in reality but fiction. Such faith initiates a legal adjustment of one's accounts in heaven, but there is no heart appreciation. Rather, true faith is seeing the faith of Jesus Christ seeing the cross, appreciating what it costs for the Son of God to buy you. In other words, an enemy's heart becomes reconciled to God. That's true faith for you, believing in Jesus, in his faith. Faith is seeing the faith of Jesus, seeing the cross. Here's a statement from Desire of Ages 175. The light shining from the cross reveals the love of God. His love is drawing us to himself. If we do not resist this drawing, we shall be led to the foot of the cross in repentance for the sins that have crucified the Savior. Then the Spirit of God through faith produces a new life in the soul. The thoughts and the desires are brought into obedience to the will of Christ. That's the atonement. The ultimate meaning of the cross is the atonement for him and for you. The faith of Jesus is the cleansing of the sanctuary truth. The ultimate meaning of the cross is the cleansing of the sanctuary. Or, as Ellen White said, it's the third angel's message in verity. The faith of Jesus is given to every man. The gift of the faith of Jesus is given with to every one of you, to everyone as a gift. It's, it's a birthright. If it is not hindered, it will produce the experience of being forgiven of your sins, which brings a joyous release and then a deepening, deepening experience of repentance and more releases down the line of thankfulness and peace from him. A deepening appreciation of the cross of Christ moment by moment, day by day, second by second, in repentance for sin, that crucified the dear Savior, that is ongoing justification by faith, or if you wish to call it sanctification, that's okay too. So that according to E.J. Wagoner, all that a person really needs is justification for a perfect character. The closer you come to understanding the cross, the more you will abhor yourself and desire the character of Jesus in your life. The faith of Jesus, then to me, what Paul's talking about here in the book of Galatians, chapter 2, verse 16, expresses the essential features of genuine faith and self-denying agape love that God has commissioned us to proclaim and lighten the earth with its glory. And that is, 
It is the third angel's message in verity. It is justification that is objective as well as subjective. It is the humanity of Christ, the atonement, which is both his on the cross as well as the reconciliation of your enemy heart to him, and it is God's self-denying agape. That, all of that is the faith of Jesus. Now look at verse 17, Galatians 2, verse 17. It says, but if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners. Is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. He says in verse 16, by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. So when Paul writes, we seek to be justified or forgiven by Christ, making Christ the minister of sin, he is referring to the counterfeit of true faith, which is self-centered. And indeed, he writes here, I build, I make myself a transgressor. The whole radius of concern is self. And this is the default position of every natural-born sinner. And it is the old covenant. It's illustrated by that billboard sign on the side of the road there on I-75 in downtown Atlanta. Obedience. If you obey, you'll have a changed life. That's the old covenant. Because God does not ask us to do something for salvation. He asks us to believe his promises. And true faith works by agape, Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. So the new covenant principle of the cross, the new covenant is the principle of the cross. He says in verse 19, For I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. The I, the ego, is crucified. After all, that's what the law demanded all along, that self die. And this is where all conscious as well as unconscious temptations arise from you, from your ego, from yourself. Motivation, self, dear friends, yourself can never be converted. Yourself can never be converted. It is only crucifixion of self. It is only the crucifixion of self, and you can give Jesus the permission to do that. Because you cannot crucify your ego. But you can ask Jesus to crucify it. Ellen White says that in Christ's Object Lessons, page 159. You can look that up. That's gospel truth. You can never ask the self to be converted. Oh, Lord, please change my ego. It has to die. And it has to die moment by moment. And day by day, the way of the cross leads home. Self-denial is the only way. It's the principle of the cross. Self has the potential of rising up at any time in the Christian's life. And a recognition of this fact will keep us ever watchful and vigilant. Well, here is the statement from Christ's Object Lessons, 159. She says, No outward observances can take the place of simple faith. 
an entire renunciation of self, but no man can empty himself of self. We can only consent for Christ to accomplish the work. So here's the prayer to pray. Then the language of the soul will be, Lord, take my heart, for I cannot give it. It is thy property. Keep it pure, for I cannot keep it for thee. Save me in spite of myself, my weak, unchristlike self. Mold me, fashion me, raise me into a pure and holy atmosphere where the rich current of thy love can flow through my soul. Now that's an appropriate prayer of the heart. That's how the blood of Christ cleanses us from sin. That's receiving the atonement. It's not some legal fiction whereby you trigger some kind of an adjustment of your record up in heaven and God makes all the legal transactions and now everything's hunky-dory and okay. Forgiveness of sins is a reconciling of your enemy heart toward God. And that's the slaying of self. Christ does that in you. The self is the source of all of our backbiting, one another. The self is the source of all the divisions in the church. The self is the source of all competition among groups in the church. The self is the source of I can do it better than you can. Jesus has showed us the way through his faith, hasn't he? And he's bringing us into the unity of that faith, which is the truth of the gospel. Not a one of us could ever dreamed up this wonderful truth. It has come to us from the Holy Scriptures as a revelation from God. The power of the gospel can redeem us, not only buy us from sin, but reclaim us from sin and change all the self-motivating things that we do in church so that we no longer divide ourselves by this self-motivation, but we're unified in the self-denying love of Christ. Now think about this very seriously, will you? Paul Penno is the backbiter. He's the, he's the gossip. He's the one that says, I can do it better than anybody else. He's the one that's full of himself and motivated by self. You see, the ego that we have, it's all the same. It's boring. It's flat-out boring, but we all have it. And to the degree that we manifest it is to the degree that we don't recognize that we're convert, un- we recognize we're unconverted in that part of our life. Peter, while facing the cross, Jesus told him that when he was converted to go tell his brethren about the real meaning of the cross, because at that moment, facing the cross, he was not converted. And what was the truth about that revealed? That when one little teenager said, aren't you one of his disciples? What did Peter say? I know not the man, in order to preserve himself. Peter did not understand the principle of the cross going into the crucifixion. Dear friends, there's no way that God is going to allow the winds of strife to be unleashed upon us 
if we're not prepared for the seven last plagues and the mark of the beast, as long as God's people are unconverted. And in his mercy, he holds that back. May your heart respond to the message of the cross this morning. May my heart, myself that I was born with is the self that you were born with. We're all Adam. We're all born in Adam, and all alike have sinned. That was our text this morning in Romans 3.23. All alike have sinned. We've all chosen. We're all like Adam. But we're all being justified by his grace. It says verse 24. And grace is for sinners, for you and for me. Dear Father in heaven, please bless us poor faltering human beings who have foggy vision. Please reveal to us what we don't know about ourselves. That's a very scary prayer. But it is the pathway to the blotting out of sins and not just the forgiveness of sins, however wonderful that is. For the more that the Holy Spirit convicts us of what we don't know about ourselves, the more that we can consciously confess that sin to you. Yes, it all boils down to we're responsible for the murder, for the death of the Son of God. But as the Holy Spirit reveals that to us in a deeper way, we begin to see that the sins of others are my sins, but for the grace of God. And I must confess those sins too, because Self is in me just as in them. And then we experience the joy of the blotting out of sin. In Christ, we thank you for this grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Join us again next time for the word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.